news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. As per usual, we're going to dive right in. Cece, will you kick us off? Dear Cece, Carly and Bianca. If it were not for Taste Not Ya podcast, I would not be where I am today in my writing journey. After finishing my novel during COVID, my creativity, my creativity quickly waned once I became pregnant with and gave birth to my second child. Through sleep-deprived eyes, I could see my dream of being a published author slipping away. Then, one day, I can't even remember the day, I came upon your podcast. It changed everything. Listening to you three critique submissions, ask questions to guests, and give advice has reignited my passion for writing. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. P.S. I hope you don't include this first paragraph in the overall word count. If you do, then I will be in the danger zone. I would love to receive feedback from you all. However, knowing the framework of the podcast and Cece's interest in novels with speculative elements, I'm directing this query letter to her. Siren of the Sky, a 70,000-word women's fiction novel with fantasy elements, follows Hannah O'Kelly as she discovers her hidden identity as a seer while healing from a traumatic past. This book will appeal to readers looking for real-world rooted fantasy stories, 
and features a web of magical family secrets as found in Spells for Forgetting, an epic identity-seeking journey as found in Alice Hoffman's The Book of Magic and Destined Love. Hannah O'Kelly moved from Historia, California to start over. To cope with the anxiety sparked by the past she ran from, Hannah writes about a woman named Morwina and lately is seeing her main character in the real world. After a surprise meeting with Samuel Kaufman, a new client who needs legal counsel for a church renovation in Boston, Hannah accepts the case, hoping it will bring her closer to finding her purpose. After just a day in her new city, Sam's assistant, Melanie Kircher, tells Hannah about a plan to uncover their boss's ulterior motives for the renovation. With the help of the project's handsome Irish architect, Seamus Murphy, Hannah learns about a hidden side of her family and their ties to the church's fatal fire. When Hannah and Seamus travel to Ireland to find the woman who could help them unlock Sam's secret, they also find someone Hannah only dreamed of meeting. Armed with the knowledge of how Sam's project and her newly discovered identity as a seer, a sky siren, are connected, Hannah must embrace her new purpose so that she can learn to love again. I completed Siren of the Sky after being accepted into a writing workshop led by Richard Bosch at Chapman University my undergraduate alma mater. As a mother with undiagnosed anxiety, I wrote this novel to reimagine the power of tackling mental health issues through creativity. All the places featured in Siren of the Sky have brought me closer to figuring out who I am and what I'm meant to do. P.S. It's writing. When I'm not writing, you can find me outside with my two boys cooking recipes that appeal to a wide array of palettes and staying up too late reading. Siren of the Sky is my debut novel, and I would be honored to send you the completed manuscript. As per the submission guidelines, I have included the first five pages. Warm regards, Jesse Squires. Thanks, Cece. I think their main character's name is pronounced Seamus, but my pronunciation of Irish words is also a bit dodged. So let's, let's, I think let's go with Seamus. All right, Cece, what was your take on the query letter? I can't pronounce Anglo words. Irish words are the hardest ones. Like the hardest ones. Okay, Seamus. Why not write it with an H? Like why do this to me? Okay, this is why Latin languages make sense. This query is clocking at around 430 words and I agree the first paragraph should not count towards the word count. The premise has me really intrigued and I really, really like the title. In terms of notes, I'll start with the small stuff. There are a lot of names here and I'm not convinced we need them all. In general, the more names you have in your query letter, the higher the chances of whoever's reading it getting lost in the story. So make sure that we need all these names. For example, do we need Melody's name? I don't think we do. The line about the protagonist seeing her main character in the real world, it had me a little confused because I wasn't sure if it meant that the main character had come to life and they were like grabbing coffee together, or if the protagonist was seeing her main character maybe in the corner of her eye, and then she turned around and nobody was there. Anything is possible since this is fantasy and there's no right or wrong way to do it. I just think that if it's going to be in the query letter, I need to understand what exactly we're talking about. That being said, I'm not convinced it has to be in the query letter because we don't hear about it again. We don't hear about the fact that she sees Marwina again. So now let's tackle storyline. Hannah is taking the job to find her purpose. That to me felt like a little bit of a wishy-washy motivation. I would tweak that. I would just add more pressure, make her call to action something with more pressure. And then notice how the climax of the novel, the big will she or won't she question that keeps the readers turning the pages, 
that's also centered on the same thing. It's Hannah finding her purpose. And the reader already knows that, right? So it's not the most compelling climax either. So I would change both of these things. I would make them totally different and I would just up the stakes in both instances. And to be very fair, as a human, finding one's purpose, I don't think there's anything more important. But in a story, we need more because we pause our real lives to read a story. So we just need everything to be heightened. So, you know, the stakes have to be higher. So those are my notes. Thank you, Cece. All right, what was in those opening pages? So Hannah is grabbing a latte, but really she's living inside the story she's writing, a story set in Ireland about a woman named Morwina. We learned a lot about Hannah. We learned that she's lived in California for four years, that she lived in Ireland when she was studying abroad in college, that she's been writing this novel since a tragic event led her to move to Historia, that inspiration has been visiting her quite often lately that she's from the east coast of Canada, among other things. There's a lot of information on Hannah. And then Hannah checks her phone. There's lots of notifications. She heads back to work on the way she sees a woman that's a dead ringer for her protagonist. And for a moment, she's stunned until she realizes their eye colors aren't exactly the same. A ladybug lands on her shoulder, which Hannah takes to be a good omen. She tells herself that, you know, things are going to be different. And this time she means it. This is something she said to herself many times before. But again, she thinks that the ladybug is an omen. So she's hopeful. We we end the, the five pages on a very hopeful note. Marvelous. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on them? Okay, I finally have clarity on what the query letter means in terms of the protagonist seeing her main character. So that's great. I am 100% sure that this is not starting in the right place. I'll tell you why. Hannah is lost in her thoughts. And her thoughts are about a fictional story she created. That means the reader has to be invested in two stories. The story and the story that's within the story. It makes it really hard, right? Because neither of the two stories are things that the reader already knows about. They're both, they're two beginnings, essentially. And what makes it especially difficult is the fact that neither of these stories has tension. Both are establishing character information. Now, we get great details on both characters. I want to be clear about that. Hannah and Morwina. We establish setting. Again, great setting. And we establish state of mind in a very, very clear way. And that's all amazing. But really, the purpose of a story, the purpose of starting a story, is to make the reader feel curious. And we're not getting story-forward curiosity here. I would rework it. I don't think we need to be introduced to Morwina at the same time as Hannah. Hannah can come first. Let's see her in an interesting moment with plenty of tension. She could even think of Morwina. The reader will wonder who she is. We don't need clarity that she's a main character right away. And then Hannah could you know, be living an interesting moment in her life, making sure that the reader's really curious about her life. And chapter two might introduce us to Morwina. It doesn't have to be at the same time. So that would be my suggestion. I like that suggestion. And it also plants curiosity seeds, you know, because as writers, our characters feel real to us. I remember one day, I was brushing my teeth and I suddenly spat out my toothpaste and I said to my husband, so-and-so is pregnant. And he was like, that's great. And then five minutes later, he was like, who's so-and-so? And And I was like, oh, it's my character. And he was like, oh, for God's sake, I can't keep track of the real people in our lives. And now you expect me to keep track of your imaginary friends. So yeah. Okay. Carly, will you kick us off with the next query letter? 
Dear Carly Waters, since you represent historical and women's fiction, I'm querying you with Vivian Stone, 89,000 words, which is inspired by the scandalous on and off screen relationship of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. It's a gritty reality of stardom during the mid 20th century would appeal to fans of Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Daisy Jones and the Six. Los Angeles, 1951. Vivian Stone is used to settling. Since she doesn't have the talent to make her dream of Broadway a reality, she turns to Hollywood, where looks trump all. When tall, dark, and handsome actor Hugh Fox only wants friendship, that's what she takes. And after she makes a studio exec laugh, she slums it in comedy instead of the refined world of drama she craves. Then Vivian lands her first lead opposite Playboy Kit Pierce and falls into the secret world of old Hollywood rules, filming for 40-hour stretches on pep pills, strict diets, and sham dates. Though their on-screen chemistry leads to an off-screen marriage of passionate highs, their addictions drag them to devastating lows. Determined for a fresh start, Vivian and Kit pitch a sitcom called Bobby and Clara. She's dubbed the queen of comedy, making millions laugh, but her greatest joke is her life. Her marriage is in shambles, leaving her with two slivers of happiness, the show, which can't continue if they split, and Hugh, the friend she's in love with. She can continue to settle for slivers, or she can risk them to pursue the love she deserves, knowing she might end up with nothing. As a freelance writer and editor from Buffalo, New York, go Bills! My work can be found in text from education publishers like Pearson, Cengage, and Macmillan. Last year, I participated in Rogue Mentor, where I learned to work on developmental edits on a deadline. I Love Lucy reruns were a staple of my childhood. When I'm not using characters from my favorite TV shows to demonstrate concepts for college students, I'm at a nice rink cheering on my hockey-loving kids. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Melissa O'Connor. Thanks, Carly. Okay, word count and your take on that. All right, this one clocks in at 354 words. Okay, so in terms of our comps here, I really think we only need one Taylor Jenkins read book. I don't think we need to. I would obviously keep Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo just because of the time period. It's becoming one of those books that's like a very larger than life book, might be getting too big to be a comp, but I do think it's kind of the applicable comp here. So I would just keep Seven Husbands and Mrs. Maisel for your comps here. In my notes here, which everybody can see if you're a Kofi subscriber, once you log in, you'll be able to see. I kind of am moving around some words here. So for example, one thing is, you know, to make her dream of Broadway a reality I would just say like her Broadway dreams things like that like let's just try and get get rid of a few words it's not really that long but I do think there are some instances instances where we're using more words than we actually need to here I wasn't really sure if we were going to need all the information about Hugh Fox and the friendship. It obviously comes back around at the end, but I really wasn't convinced at the beginning it was kind of plot-driven information. It seemed a bit more like character information. In the end, I realized that it was needed, but just so you know, that's something that that came off that way for me. And then our, our last our last line of the body paragraph. So she can continue to settle for slivers or she can risk them to pursue the love she deserves, knowing she might end up with nothing. I honestly think that you can do better. I would, I mean, it's, there's so much juicy plot happening in this book. And that feels like a very much like, we're just going to kind of sum it all up line. I would try some different versions of this line because the the last line is the, the thing that we're left with, right? Like when, when we've actually thought about this plot and, and that's kind of what we're going to close off the, the plot paragraph with. So I would just rewrite that a number of times, try to figure out which one you think is the strongest because I I think I think you can just do better. But overall, I think this is I think this is really interesting. I like that it's very dramatic. You know, I love the kind of vintage Hollywood vibe. I, I just think there's a I think there's a lot that's really working here. And I also really like the fact that 
she becomes this queen of comedy. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of whether it's, you know, actors or artists or writers that think they're going to be this like, quote unquote, serious artist. And then they're like, actually, comedy is pretty great. You know, being able to make people laugh is is a wonderful thing. And, and being able to entertain people is a wonderful thing. So I like that she she slips into comedy successfully. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was in those opening pages? Okay, so we start with a timestamp, which we kind of already know, Los Angeles, 1951. We meet our main character. She is exiting an audition where we feel that she didn't do very well. So she kind of reads us the audition form notes and it says like she can't act, she needs a vocal coach, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So she's kind of down in the dumps. We know that she is on her way also to meet a friend of hers at a club where they can kind of maybe meet some people and network and and that sort of thing. So she is getting out of her car, walking over to the Sunset Strip club and her heel breaks on her shoe. And we kind of find out it's like, this is her only pair of shoes. This is the outfit that she always wears to auditions. You know, she doesn't have a lot of money. And so as she's kind of like stumbling from breaking her heel, gentleman catches her and kind of helps her out. And he snaps off the other heel. So she is able to kind of walk flat footed and she finds her friend in line and they end up walking into the club. And we find out that the friend knows this suave gentleman who has helped her out in her time of need. And that's the end. Thank you, Carly. At any point, does she present him with the bill for the shoe that he has now broken and will need to repair? Excellent question. There's a lot here where I'm like, the, sh- the shoes are what hung me up on these pages. I'm like, how does one go from having a heeled shoe to a flat shoe? Most heels are designed in that they can only be heels. They cannot be flat. So my literal only note for these pages were explain the construction of the shoe to me a little bit better so that I can understand what happened here. But other than that, I actually really love these pages. I don't, I didn't make a single note. And what I wanted to make a note on was why I didn't have any notes. So I can kind of sum it up for you in terms of like what I really liked about these pages. So we understand the struggle, right? So we have an out of work, underpaid actress. She's an underdog. She's somebody we want to root for, right? So we have that number one. There's no moment where she's also just like dwelling, where she's just like, oh, darn, poor me, you know, she's just like, I'm going to go off and, you know, be ambitious, right, and, and make some connections. So we were also on her side with that. There's also a lot of movement where it's like, we're very aware that she is in the car driving to the event. From the event, she is like walking into the club, right? There's a lot of action kind of going on around her. So there's a lot for her to kind of comment on and witness and people witnessing her and seeing her kind of interact with other people in that capacity is also really, really nice. There's obviously a meet cute here, which, you know, this is going to be a romantically based novel. Obviously, it's nice to have our meet cute happening really early on. So I thought it, that was really well handled. There's a very, there's a mysterious quality to this gentleman. So I was like, I need to figure out more about this guy. And so I definitely wanted to, to learn more and, and keep turning the pages after our sample was done. One of my favorite things, which I've talked about before also is this power imbalance, right? There's this idea that somebody has the power, somebody doesn't have the power. And through these pages, we're going to kind of explore that relationship and ambition and, and all of those wonderful things that are, that are going to come with this. So I really wanted to know what happened next. I, I really thought these were excellent pages. Melissa, I thought you did a great job. Amazing, Carly. Yeah. And it's so much easier to begin with movement with many different characters. I mean, not too many, obviously, but certainly, again, so much easier to begin with that than having your characters sitting by themselves as they think things through, right? Okay, right. Let's now go to Cece. Will you read us your next query letter? Dear Ms. Lyra, thank you. Thank you and Carly and Bianca for supporting authors and pulling back the curtain on the publishing business in so many ways through the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast 
your hours-long webinars that I gladly stay online with for yes, even longer, and seen feedback sessions. I've learned and I've laughed and I'm indebted to you. I can only imagine how busy the queries and first pages in your actual inbox keep you, yet you carve out time for people like me who seek feedback through books with hooks. I wish you many returns. You seek high-concept sci-fi with literary and upmarket feel, and I seek representation for my 81,000-word adult post-apocalyptic science fiction novel, The Descended, a multi-POV standalone with series potential. The Descended, my debut, will appeal to people who enjoyed imagining how they would survive The Walking Dead and who ate up the intricate end-of-the-world details of Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake. Content warning violence, child abuse, and profanity. Audrey Kelly knows loss before aircraft slam to earth and violent creatures descend upon Ohio. Her dad abandoned her as a teenager and her long-held hopes of reunion dissipate when ghoulish lurchers and a strange man force her to retreat inside a cavernous underground shelter. Everyone beyond the red door in this opulent place seems relieved to see one another but barely makes eye contact with her. Though she's safe... She's trapped, and her partner and mom remain in harm's way. The guarded one who led her underground, Mitch Gray, has faced the unrelenting expectations of his people since he wore two T overalls and revealed he possesses powers like no one else. He questions his upbringing the more he's with Audrey and risking it all for reasons he cannot disclose. He divulges his people's greatest secret. The descendants have for generations hired handlers to befriend and marry and otherwise find inns to suppress humans like Audrey, people who don't realize their own power. Handlers, he admits, are the reason her dad fled. These disclosures betray his family, but Audrey cannot do what he knows is possible if she doesn't trust him. Kevin Williams is the love of Audrey's life, and she, his. He accepted the handler mission, but even before the apocalypse divided him from the woman he swore to suppress and failed not to love, he deeply regretted interfering with her life. Above ground, he's forged a family and faced with a dwindling food supply at the home where they hide. They must act. He braves dark and abandoned places, Ohio's cold, and the creatures for them. Maybe if he saves them, he can believe he's redeemable. Like Audrey Kelly, I reported in newsrooms before becoming a corporate storyteller. I started this novel in early 2020, pondering how to accurately portray life in lockdown. I trust you appreciate the irony there. I revised this novel after alpha and beta readers critiqued it and have immersed myself in emerging author podcasts like yours, industry conferences and webinars like yours, and fiction like Bianca and your book club picks. When writing and rewriting, I view feedback as a gift. When not writing and rewriting, I'm strategizing marketing for an organization, skills I'm raring to bear for this book. Thank you for your consideration. The first five pages are attached. May I send you the full manuscript? Michelle Lassetti. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, could you give us word count and your take on that? So this is clocking in at 468 words. And to be fair, I did also cut the first paragraph since it's podcast specific. Speaking of which, can we talk about how lovely that first paragraph is? Like, Michelle, thank you. You're wrong, though. We are indebted to you. Meaning the three of us, Bianca, Carly, and me, were indebted to all our listeners because without our listeners, we'd just be three very opinionated ladies talking into the void. Like you're the ones who make us a community. So thank you. We're really, really grateful. 
I feel like we need to make a super cut of all of these wonderful things everybody has said about us because it honestly warms our heart and it makes it all worth it. So we we love those little those little messages that we get and the DMs and and all of the little words of support and encouragement obviously keeps us going every week. So thank you guys. A hundred percent. I am looking forward to seeing that reel. Now you have to do it, Carly. <laughs> okay. So this is a really great query letter. Very strong. It's really tough to write a query letter with three POV characters. And I got to say, like hats off to the writer here because you did it. This is really excellent. Um, a few notes. Audrey's power. Can we know what it is? It's probably not a reveal, right? Because it's so inherent to the story. I'd like to know to understand how it matters to this world since world building is, is a huge part of this. Mitch's dilemma. Can we get a sense of what's at stake with more specificity? For example, is his life at stake? Like, will his people kill him given that he's revealed the secret to, to Audrey? And for Kevin, the journey he goes on is very clear. But I'm wondering how his path is going to collide with Audrey's and Mitch's. And it kind of has to because, you know, that's that's typically how it works anyway. So I'd like to know that to be able to see the web effect. And that's when all the story comes together. And it feels like a spider's web, right? Like even though it has different sections, it's all super connected. I just want a sense of that. So really great job. Thank you for sharing. And it's really excellent. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? If your cat keeps showing up, I'm going to keep interrupting and being like, baby, baby, baby. And it's going to be a lot of work for poor cat or Alicia. Anyway, we have a prologue. A man who is never identified hears a knock at the door and then he sees three people on the other side and he immediately knows his life will never be the same again. The people come in and they explain the mission to the man. He must keep his vow. No one from his family must know. They'd visit regularly. They remind him of the sacrifices that the mission will require. He can't ever marry for love. He has to be careful not to have children. They ask if he accepts and the man does accept. Then we have chapter one. Audrey is at her cousin's wedding and watching the father-daughter dance is so hard for her because she misses her own dad. And her boyfriend consoles her, but she's really worried that her boyfriend's drinking too much. And she's like, you're 40 years old. Like, you shouldn't be drinking this much. And it doesn't help matters that weddings are really hard for her because he won't commit. And on the way home, she talks to him about the fact that maybe he should stop drinking because he doesn't seem to have a very good handle on his alcohol. Ooh, the P word. There's a prologue. Okay, what was your take on that? I'm pro-prologue here. Pro-prologue, it's working. The world building just makes sense. I really, I would keep it, I want to be clear, but I would also tweak it. So keep it and tweak it. We need more specificity in the man's interiority. I get that we can't know who the man is. That works really well. That's fine. But we still need more specificity. Don't get me wrong. The premise is really compelling. The way he knows his life will never be the same. The reference to the mission. The knowledge that if he refuses, he will be made to forget. Literally, like men in black style. But it did feel dangerously generic. I understand why. It's probably because she doesn't want to identify the man, right? But there are ways to do it without identifying. We can still get sharp specifics in his thoughts. When it's discussed that he'll never be able to marry for love, for example, did his mind flash with the image of the woman who got away? And if so, was that a consolation? Because if he can't marry for love anyway, at least the fact that she got away isn't that tragic. Or maybe not. Maybe he's never found love. And maybe he had feelings about that. And this, and the fact that he was called to the mission changes that. Did he anticipate the heartbreak that he was about to cause? Because maybe he's in a relationship with a person. And also, was he expecting the people now? He knew who they were. But 
was there like a timeline? Are they late? Are they on time? Was it not necessarily a given that he would be chosen? Is it a situation where like they may show up or they may not? In which case, does he have theories about why now and why he was chosen? Is he thinking back to the last time that he heard a knock at the door and he assumed it would be them, but it wasn't? And how different these two situations are. Maybe the fact that he was consumed with relief and disappointment at the same time, right? What I'm saying is his interiority needs to make him feel like a full person, a real person, even though he's not going to be an identified person. They're different things. Plus, he should have a moment of doubt. He's accepting the mission too quickly. He can act in the same way, but his interiority needs to have a moment of, what if I go down this other path? Even if for a split second, right? It helps for the storytelling. It helps to have the hero go, maybe I shouldn't, even if he ultimately accepts. Because that contemplation makes the reader feel the vulnerability. And it also makes his hero's journey more of a choice as opposed to something that was going to happen anyway. Therefore, it gives him more protagonism. But yeah, it's really good. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. This is one of the works that I think I I got to do some workshopping on in my last workshop session. And I remember loving it as well. And it's wonderful to see the evolution of it. Okay, Carly, let us go to our last query letter. The Brontide Railway is complete at 115,000 words. It's dystopian literary fiction by Katie Renwick, similar in theme to The Stand and in tone to The Last of Us, with character vignettes throughout. Kellen Safri is a doctor's teenage daughter. Living a scavenger life in a post-apocalyptic world, she wakes up to find her mother has left without explanation. Armed with nothing but her knowledge of healing, her fear of strangers, and an unyielding determination to see her mother again, Kellen must face her greatest fear, abandonment. As she survives captivity, torture, and starvation, Kellen realizes her true strength lies in the hope that propels her in the love of strangers turned family. Aiden Briarhill, a military veteran, stumbles upon her path as she is alone and out of food. Having lost his own daughter and feeling guilt over the loss, Aiden is instantly drawn to Kellen and makes an oath to do all he can to protect her. Despite her fear, Kellen trusts Aiden and the two work together to survive a few quiet years in the small town of Cartwright. A mysterious knock on her door displaces her quiet existence with her new guardian as she is forced to decide if she will use her powers of healing to save the stranger or let the man die. The choice is an easy one but leads to friction with Aiden and an unstoppable chain of events that threaten Kellen and Aiden's lives. When the stranger reveals that Kellen is wanted by the rebel army, Aiden becomes suspicious. A battle ensues and Kellen is taken hostage by the same military Aiden once served. Desired by both sides, Kellen must accept that her once quiet, lonely existence is gone and find the strength to fight her captors and choose her path in this new world. Katie Renwick is a mom of two, probably the only mom who doesn't drink coffee, lover of literature and her husband, sister to five, and family means everything and makes for some great characters. She lives in a suburb outside of Washington, D.C. She has her B.A. in English Literature and works full-time for the Department of Defense. You will find her at the local library with her kids when she isn't working. Thank you, Carly. Interesting doing the author bio in the third person. I'm wondering if that's something you guys see a lot of. If it works, what do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. First of all, I'll say the word count, which Katie summarized for us. It was 377. So yeah, one of the things I noticed was that Katie talked, like Katie mentioned herself in the first paragraph as well as the bottom. And so I had a note there, which is we definitely don't need your name twice because we get all these by email, right? So it's like it's coming into our inbox. We see your name 
in the actual email, right? And then you're obviously going to have the information in the bottom. We definitely don't need your name at the top by any means. I don't really have a problem with the third person bio. The, the issue that I found with this bio was that there's a lot of brackets. It was like, she's a mom of two and then like told us something about it. And then it was like love of literature and her husband. It's just too many brackets. So when you guys on the Kofi subscription can, can kind of see how that's all laid out. So Katie, I would probably just find a way to kind of weave that in a little bit easier. And probably first person is probably the way to do it. Okay, so back up to the top here. So 115,000 words. This is long. I expect a lot of plot to happen in a book that's this long. And there is, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the structure here and just kind of, you know, based on what I've seen, I know I haven't seen a lot, but I have some ideas about, about the structure here. The Last of Us, everybody loves The Last of Us. It's on my to watch list. I haven't watched it yet, but everybody's obsessed with it. So this is a great comp from what I know about Last of Us. This seems to be in line. So that's great. The fact that you have these character vignettes, this scares me a little bit. This scares me because I'm worried these are info dumps. I'm worried this is backstory. I'm worried these are character sketches. So I'm just letting you know how those are those are coming off for me. So our next paragraph, we have Kellen, a doctor's teenage daughter. I would move the word doctor to describe the mother and then just have her like, Kellen is a teenage daughter and explain that the mother is a doctor instead of saying a doctor's teenage daughter. Little things like that. As I said, you'll see in my notes about some ways that I think we can kind of word this. Okay, the greatest fear being abandonment. 100% of children's greatest fear is abandonment. So I don't think this is like a unique trait to this child, this teenager. But I, I think the whole like just determination to see her mother again, that's enough. That's enough. So I would just kind of cut the explaining the greatest fear. But something that I really struggle with is this, she survives captivity, torture and starvation. Okay, so I don't know who the baddies are yet. I don't know who I'm supposed to dislike. I don't know who's keeping her captive. I don't, is she a baddie? I actually don't know, right? Like I don't know enough about this world to have any feelings towards captivity, torture, and starvation. I feel like I should, and I don't know. And I think one of the things that sometimes I feel like with this podcast, I often feel like I have to have all the answers. And when I don't have all the answers, like I'm letting everybody down. But like, sometimes I just don't have enough information to make concrete suggestions. And so this one was a, a tough one for me to kind of be able to direct you. I just don't feel like I, I have enough I have enough information here. So you'll definitely see all my notes, obviously, once once you get them. Another thing I'm kind of concerned about is these this few quiet years, right? They work together to survive a few quiet years. This feels slow. It makes me think we're not starting the book in the right place because I think the way where we need to start the book is the mysterious knock on the door. <laughs> to me, the mysterious knock on the door is the place to start the book, right? Because then through backstory later on, you can explain how these two people, how these two strangers came to live together. I don't think we actually need all that information up front. So I have a lot of questions about how this book is structured and it starts with the prologue and, and we can kind of tackle that later on. But I really feel very strongly that from what I've seen, the book starts with the, with the knock in the door. So those are some of my, my strong feelings. And then obviously we can get to the pages. Thanks, Carly. Yeah, people, if you haven't watched The Last of Us, please watch it. When I heard the premise, I was like, fungus zombies? No, thank you. Not wanting to watch that. And there's very little of the fungus zombies. But in terms of the storytelling, it is a masterclass. For example, we get this character, Ellie, early on, and we know a tiny bit about her, and we don't need to know her backstory to be fully invested in her. And then, I don't know, like seven episodes later, and each episode is like an hour, only then do we get Ellie some of her backstory, which just goes to show how, you know, people can get invested with your characters without needing all of the backstory. So please, please, please watch that. It's it's an excellent, excellent 
example of of storytelling. Cece, did you have something? Mushrooms freak me out. I mean, I tried watching it, but then there's the mushrooms everywhere, and they're so disgusting. I wanted to die. You see, even like books that deal with kind of mushrooms, I can't with fungus. I can't even read because they also freak me out. I'm like, I want my mushrooms, you know, in my in my steak sauce, in a salad. Yeah, whatever. That's on yeah, a, on a pizza. Yeah, that's that's where I want them. <laughs> but honestly, you see a little bit of the freaky ass mushroom zombies, and then you get past them, and the rest is really just about human relationships. That's what the story is about. We, we actually do I'll give it a try because you're suggesting, but that is the only reason. Because I was like, I'm not watching mushroom stuff. I'm I know, just not. I know. I, I watched a bit and I was like, yeah, well, this is gross. But really, the storytelling is amazing, and we we get very little mushroom zombies. Okay, right. So, Carly, what was in those opening pages? I love that, and it's been on my to watch list as well. So I'm glad to hear. I love that we don't get our backstory till episode seven. Love that, writers. Listen up. That is great, great, great. Okay, so now to our to our project here. So we start with a prologue. And our character Jenna's point of view. I have a feeling this is the mother of our of our teenage daughter. So we start with her. She is kind of she's describing the weather. She is getting in a car. She is driving. She is trying really hard to kind of get home. And then a few minutes from home, there is a car crash. We know that she is pregnant, and what, I think we think she's leaving a doctor's appointment on her way home. She gets in a car crash, and she's like very sure that the baby's okay. And she's calling the emergency services, kind of a nine one one situation, reporting to them where she is. And then the people on the other line that she's reporting the accident into don't know where she is. And she's saying like, this is by like an abandoned baseball stadium kind of thing. And they're, they don't really know where she is. So we know we're kind of in this post-apocalyptic world. And that's kind of all we know. Wonderful. Okay. What was your take on those pages? All right. So I feel like there's a lot we don't need in these in these opening pages and opening lines. There's also a lot of conversation about or a lot of interiority about the weather. And unless the weather is has something very specific to do with this post-apocalyptic world, that the weather is a sign of something and, and kind of gives us all of these kind of clues and these kind of breadcrumb information, we really got to cut back on the weather. There's a few lines that I did like, and I made note of those. But there's a lot of lines where I'm like, I just don't think we need we need all of this. You know, there was a line which, which I liked about the weather that said, rain bombarded her windshield, creating streams of water that was the filter of seasickness and ugly green pollen. So we get, the, again, we get the idea of like what the weather is doing to their world. That Those parts I liked. The other points I definitely think we should we should cut back on. I ultimately felt like we moved into backstory way too fast. You know, we're driving with this character home. She slips into backstory to kind of explain a little bit about the what we assume to be the father of the baby. I just, I don't think we, I don't think we need all of that. I just don't know why we're not in the present. Again, this comes back to like, why does this book have to begin here? And of all things, why does it need to begin with the prologue? If if we're in a prologue and we're slipping into backstory in the prologue, like these are all signs to me that we're not starting the book in the right place. I really firmly believe we need to be starting the book in the present here. So when this character is reporting the accident into emergency services, it's not in quotations or offset at all that she's speaking to the emergency services. So I would figure out a way to kind of denote that because it kind of just all blended in. And I wasn't really, I wasn't really sure why that was a stylistic choice. Another thing was that this author had sent in a lot of pages. I think there was way more than five. So I did have to make a note of of when I stopped reading this, but my gut take is telling me that the book doesn't begin in the right place. The author potentially doesn't know the right place to start it, or maybe doesn't know 
what is going to be that, that catalyst that's really going to start these characters off on their journey. And if we need to start with the mother character, is she even going to come back? Like, anyway, I got a lot of questions and I don't have a lot of answers. And I feel like this is a project that is going to stun me for a little while. Cause I do want to know what I, I do think this is an interesting concept. And I do think the last of us comp is interesting. So I have a lot of mixed feelings. <laughs> My ears are burning as the author is now cursing me to high heaven for not inviting them on the podcast. Author again, I apologize. Do not come for me. Right. So we just want to let you know that we've got a special Books with Hooks coming up in May in which we have Tracy Thomas from the Stacks podcast joining us. She's going to help us with one of our Books with Hooks and she's requested that we focus on nonfiction. So that would include memoir as well. So if you have submitted to the podcast, even if it was recently, you can resubmit to this particular segment. You've got two weeks left to do that before the cutoff. And then we'll be in touch with you if you have been chosen for that. And we look forward to that session. All right, let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. and We have bilingual friends and francophone friends, so it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously, and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hello, everybody. Instead of Bianca, you have Carly today doing an author interview. And I am so excited to have another client. I've been welcoming a lot of clients onto the podcast this year, and I'm excited to give you guys an extra kind of behind the scenes into my world and, and who I work with and hear about their exciting books. So this is Jane Healy today. Jane Healy is the author of The Saturday Evening Girls Club, Secret Stealers, and The Beantown Girls, a Washington Post and Amazon Charts bestseller. She's a graduate of the University of New Hampshire and Northeastern University. Jane shares a home north of Boston with her husband, two daughters, two cats, and a dog. When she's not writing, she enjoys time with her family, traveling, running, cooking, and going to the beach. Her next novel, which is Good Night from Paris, is on sale in March. So welcome to the podcast, Jane. Yay, thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. I listen to the podcast all the time, so I'm like completely honored to be on it today. Oh, well, I can't wait for everybody to meet you, get your energy, um, and hear about <laughs> your whole kind of historical fiction career. So obviously, I read your bio, but because this is a podcast about writing, we get into the weeds, right? Like, I really want to hear it all. Yes. So tell me about the writing journey from beginning to now, from getting started to the book deals and all of the wonderful accolades and bestseller lists. Give us the big arc. We all want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the questions I get when I talk to groups is like, have you always wanted to write novels? And I, I had, I always wanted to write novels, but I was a really pragmatic kid. So, you know, when I got out of college, I wasn't going to go, oh, I'm going to go be a novel writer now, you know, because I had student loans and other things. So I ended up actually going into high tech in product management. And it wasn't until I think I had my daughters, they're 16 and 19 now, that I was like, all right, if you're going to do this fiction thing and take it seriously, you actually have to spend time on it and really focus. And I think any sort of like life moment like that makes you think about your life and your goals and what you want. So I started, I say, like working in the fringes of my life. I left high tech. I, I was a freelance writer. So I was working for magazines and newspapers and private clients. And then just taking workshops and having a writer's group and sharing fiction pages. And my first novel was the Saturday Evening Girls Club. And I got the idea from a magazine article I wrote for Boston Magazine because Saturday Evening Girls Club pottery is highly collectible. And it was made by this group of women in the early 1900s in Boston. They were Italian and Jewish immigrant women. And I was, I was fascinated by that story. And so a long time ago now, I said to my husband, I think this is my first novel. I think I'm going to write this novel and get it published. And he was like, go for it. And since I had been writing professional for a while, I was like, how hard could it be? I can totally do this. <laughs> it was, it was, the, the learning curve was way harder for a long, you know, long form fiction than I ever thought it would be, of course. And so, yeah, the first time 
So it came out in 2017, but the first time I tried to get it published was probably around 2013, 14. I queried a bunch of agents. I had my Excel spreadsheet and I got tons of requests for full manuscripts and partials, which you know is like a good sign. And I thought, oh, this is this is definitely going to happen for me. It's totally going to happen. And then slowly the rejections started rolling in as they do. I think I stopped counting at like, I don't know, 70. And I was, it was just, it was soul crushing. And I put it on a shelf and I said, you know, maybe it's not the time. And I kept working on other fiction projects, doing my freelance writing. And then I noticed a trend, and I think this is important, like timing also matters in publishing, a trend towards immigrant fiction. The Orphan Train, a couple years later, became really popular, Hotel on the Corner, Bitter and Sweet. And I took my mother-in-law, actually, at the time to see the movie Brooklyn, which is based on Colm Tobin's book. And and I was like, I wrote a fiction novel, you know, an immigrant fiction book, like, not fiction novel. That's the worst. <laughs> I'm like, why? You know, maybe I should try one more time. And so I kind of put my agent list together again and started getting my query ready. And I, I and I don't even know if you know this story, Carly. I at the time there was this contest called Kindle First, and it was a kind of like an ebook crowdsourced publishing contest. So you put your manuscript up there or or a, or a part of it up on this Kindle First website and people vote for whether they think it should be published or not. And if if you win Kindle Scout after 30 days, you get an ebook deal. Now that was not what I wanted. I want like I wanted the whole book deal, but I knew that agents and editors looked at this website for possible projects. And I actually and Danielle talks about this too, the night that I put it up on Kindle Scout, I said to my husband I really am just doing this because I want Danielle Marshall from Lake Union Publishing to offer me a deal. And we both kind of laughed at it because we're like, never going to happen. But I had stalked Danielle online and I thought Lake Union would be a good fit. So I won Kindle Scout. There are many winners, not just, you know, one. And two days later, Danielle called and offered me a publishing deal for Saturday Evening Girls Club. I was like hiding in the closet because my girls were little and all running around and, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and then I've been with Lake Union ever since. And I, I, it's just, it goes to show you like, there's many different paths and it took me longer than I thought, but I think that's kind of the norm for a lot of writers. Yeah. Yeah. That's so wonderful. And Danielle is so lovely. And it's so funny, like parts of the business that are you guys obviously as authors are spending so much time just like going away writing right writing 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 and then there's things like our podcast where we critique things or you go on like kindle scout it's like this type of judging in a public sphere for authors is so i'm just humbled every time that authors come on our podcast or authors put themselves forward for these type of these type of contests because it's so nerve-wracking and you guys are all so brave It is so, so nerve wracking. And in fact, another story I always share is like Grub Street has a great conference, Grub Street Writers, which is a Boston based writers group. And they have a great conference every year. And and one one year they had kind of like, you anonymously share pages to a panel of agents and editors. And I shared the first pages of Saturday Evening Girls Club and they critique it in front of 250 people. It was anonymous, but they could critique it and they kind of trashed it like it was so so horrible and soul crushing I like call my husband crying in the bathroom oh, and I'm like I can't do this anymore but, <laughs> but you know, know. you just gotta you gotta get, get a thicker skin and 
Yeah, and understand it's all part of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I've been to a number of conferences where they do like, yeah, the American Idol style of critiquing. And it's, we. I've done one before where somebody reads the query letter. It's usually like a third party. It's not the person that wrote it. They read it. And then agents have to raise their hand when they would stop reading, like as if it was in my, my query inbox. Yes. And, we'd all, yeah. and then when three agents raise their hand, it would be like, we're going to stop and talk about <laughs> it. Like, yeah, it is incredibly useful. And it is the way that our minds think. And yet... I, as I said, I'm just in awe that authors put themselves through this because it can be just soul crushing, but there's a number of elements of this business that can be soul crushing. I guess. <laughs> that is true. So you just got to get a, a thicker skin. And I'm, I'm always in awe of the authors who read their query letters to you on the podcast. Like they're, they're there in front of you reading it. That's so brave. And, and, but I, I learn a lot. I learn a lot about what you, about first pages and what you think works and doesn't work and, and pitches. And it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is, right. It's like everybody learns from it, but somebody has yes. to take anything. Um, <laughs> I know, exactly. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, you talked about Danielle Marshall at Lake Union and you've been with Lake Union for your career thus far. You know, Tell us a little bit about what that's like to have a long time kind of working relationship with editors at one house. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I'm really, really fortunate. I've been working with the same editor, Alicia Clancy, who works under Danielle for three out of my four books. The first editor was Miriam. She left after the Saturday Evening Girls Club came out. But but yeah, Alicia and I have a great working relationship. And I think it it's really great when you can build a relationship with someone over subsequent books. As you know, doesn't always happen in this industry. I feel like it's happening less and less. But I love working with Alicia because she has great editorial instincts. Another question I get is like, oh, do you often have to do a ton of edits and change characters. And usually by the time my draft gets to Alicia, it's not major edits, but it's everything she suggests makes the manuscript stronger. And, and maybe a couple times I've pushed back in the past six years, but but her instincts are goes so good. She puts a note in there and I'm like, oh, she's totally right. Like mo most of the time I'm like, yep, that, that's absolutely right. I need to dig deeper here or add some more nuance there. You know, she's just, she's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, this can be an Alicia Clancy fan club because I've, <laughs> I have a number of authors with Alicia and I think she's great. I think she's also, not all editors I think are incredibly marketing forward. Whereas I feel like Alicia has that great balance between having great editorial skills as well as thinking very critically about the market and positioning and, and everything like that. So well done, Alicia. We, we love Alicia. So I get pitched a lot of historical fiction. So one of the things that turns me off as an agent is when I feel like authors are trying to show me how much research they did. And I totally get it. I'm like, obviously, historical novelists do an incredible amount of research much of it, like I would potentially argue maybe like 90% of all of that research maybe doesn't make it onto the page, but obviously understands, helps inform us of our understanding of the world and the time period and the setting. And, and your novels are so plot driven. So I know that you're obviously very focused on plot while building this historical world. So how do you make sure that you're keeping the plot moving while maintaining a good amount of kind of historical setting that really kind of reaches those historical fans? That's an excellent question. And I think that it's all about the balance. In my initial drafts of my first book, The Saturday Evening Girls Club, I really did these info dumps on like how the pottery was made and all these little fascinating details. And I had this awesome writers group of women that I'm still close with from Boston Magazine. And they were very kindly said, this is interesting, but 
no one cares. Like you, know, you can, like you can draw, you can take five pages of detail like that and get it down into a paragraph. Because I always tell like writers groups at the end of the day, historical research should add to the story, but it's not the story. It should add and enhance it and and help you figure out characters and and really create beautiful settings. But the story and the narrative is what makes readers turn the pages. And the history must always serve the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so in the, in your latest book, Good Night from Paris, we again have a, a real person and a real story. So when someone is a real person, Drew Layton is the character here, uh, and you're turning the story into a book. One thing I'm so curious about is how you decide where the story begins, right? Because I usually say, you know, a book should start at the most interesting point in a character's life. But a lot of these real life people you're covering, their lives could be varied and very interesting from from multiple vantage points, right? So I'm really interested about like that lens and that narrowing and that scope and how you decide what is the beginning and an end, especially when you're kind of finding the story within a character's life, a real person's life. That's an excellent question. And it's one that it's so funny. I was, I'm working on a new proposal now and, and I do this every time I start writing and I'm like, I'll be four pages in and be like, oh, this is the backstory. This is not where the story starts. And so with Drew Layton's story, I had started it in like three different places before I start. It starts in Paris. And I had started it at first in New York when she was on Broadway. And then I was like, oh, that's backstory. And then I started it in London when she was performing in the West End. And I'm like, nope, still backstory. And and so then I decided to start it in Paris when her husband is already at war, had gone off to war, and she's at a turning point. She's at a turning point because she can't work as an actress as easily in Paris because she's not as good with the language. And she's away from Hollywood, which is where she made her career, most specifically with the Charlie Chan movies at the time. And so she's got to find a job to help support her and her husband and and to keep herself busy and doing something. And so it's the day it starts the day that she's talking with her agent about some job opportunities and what to do next while her husband is at war. And so she ultimately, she meets with her at a cafe and has to make a decision. And that's, I like to start a book on a major turning point in the character's life and make sure that I'm not starting with the backstory. Now I want to talk a little bit about how you think about structure. So do you have an idea of what the scaffolding is going to look like, how it's going to kind of hold up the building of the book? When do you decide to kind of take that scaffolding down or do you kind of make decisions that are going to kind of change that structure as you go? Or do you kind of let that scaffolding set you up the entire way? How do you kind of think about that? No, that's another great question because I feel like I call Saturday Evening Girls Club my Frankenstein book because I kind of like, it was kind of like instead of getting an MFA, I, I I wrote this book on and off for ten years, and and I wish I had paid attention to structure upfront because I think structure is kind of I call it like the clothes hanger for your story. It's what you hang it on to give it shape and a beginning and a middle and an end, and a, and so readers feel comfortable going on this journey with you. And after I wrote Saturday Evening Girls Club and I wanted to write the Beantown Girls, I was like, okay, how can I make my life easier this time? And so I really paid attention and studied a lot about story structure. Not only did I do an outline, but I did a story structure kind of touch point outline as well about where I needed to hit certain points in the narrative to move it forward. And that's not to say I didn't tweak it along the way, but it just, it was more comfortable for me. And I felt like 
the story was the draft was tighter. That first, uh, those first initial drafts were much tighter because I paid so much attention to structure. So I'm looking at my shelf. I've like saved the cat writes a novel. That is a that's one story structure. I, Beantown Girls is very much three act structure and Secret Stealers and Goodnight from Paris is kind of a combination of like three act structure and the hero's journey. And yeah, I can't emphasize enough it it would have saved me time and if I could give writers any advice writers just starting out it would be like pay attention to that up front and you will save yourself some pain later on that's very good advice uh, <laughs> we love saves the cat writes a novel that's a huge we're, we're huge fans of, of Jessica Brody okay so now I have some questions about length of a book so what are your feelings as a writer, maybe as a reader as well, about how long a book should be? I know with historical novels or any world building, there's a tendency, obviously, to have a lot going on in terms of the length. So how do you kind of approach length? What, what feels like a good length for you? For historical fiction specifically, I think it's, it's a little bit on the longer side because there's more, like you said, more research, more backstory, more everything. With each book, I've kind of ballparked it at 100,000 words. And that is kind of what they come in at. And I prefer when I write a little long for the first initial drafts because it's I feel find it's much easier to cut than it is to to add. Good Night from Paris came in at like 115,000 words and I got it down to around like around 105, I want to say. So so yeah, that's kind of I, I kind of set it up. I work with Scrivener. I'm a huge Scrivener fan, even though I probably don't use 80% of what it's capable of. I kind of map out, okay, Jane, how many words you have to do a day if you need to hit 100,000 words by a certain date and, and backtrack from there. All right. So first, I want you to tell us about what the book is about, Good Night from Paris. Yes. And then I want you to tell me what the author's note. Yes. Yeah, so Good Night from Paris. Um, I, I think I feel like with every writing project I've done, I, I like to do something that kind of a little different challenges me, pushes me. And this one is a little different because it's it's a biographical fiction. Drew Leighton Tatier was a real person. And so she was a Hollywood actress and the 1930s. And in about 1938, she met the love of her life, Jacques Tatier, and he whisked her off to Paris and they got married right before the war started. And and like I said, she was kind of left there while he went off to war to, trying to figure out what to do with her life. And she ended up essentially being the first voice of America in Paris, broadcasting to the U.S. about what was really going on there and in the war. And what she did such a good job that Hitler actually put a bounty on her head. And and from there, her story even gets crazier. She ends up imprisoned with a number of other American women at a zoo outside Paris because um, the Germans said they were doing it in retaliation for the Americans imprisoning German women, which was a complete lie. She ends up working with the, the underground network, getting allied pilots out of France. And I was captivated with her story. And I first learned about it when I was writing the secret serialers. And I was like, that can't even be true. Like, who is this woman? Did she really, was she in a zoo? She was, a, and, and I looked her up and she was this, incredibly beautiful, talented actress. And so I like with anything, you go down those research rabbit holes. And the more I read, the more I'm like, I have to tell the story. And I, I didn't want to do a fictionalized Drew. I didn't want to make up a new name and character because I felt like I really wanted to honor her story. And so that was a challenge. As you know, you and I have discussed, it was really a challenge writing biographical fiction. And so the, my author's notes at the end are much more detailed probably than any of my other books because I wanted to 
make clear that this is very much based on her story. And it's interesting that early reviews are coming in and people are saying, I thought a lot of this was made up. And then I read the author's notes and I can't believe these people were real and this was all true. And yeah, so I, I really, in the author's notes, which is like six pages long, I separate who's real, who's kind of a composite character based on other characters and what events actually happened. I love, I'm such a nerd with that stuff. I love author's notes at the end about historical facts and, and what's real and what's not. And I find that my readers really appreciate that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted, that's why I drew attention to it because it's six pages long. So it's incredibly <laughs> in-depth author's note. And I think everybody would appreciate that. Right now with the podcast, we're in the middle of our deep dive workshop series. And last night we were talking a little bit about success and what that looks like at various stages of your career. So what do you, what do you define success when you think about what success means to you as a, as a novelist? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think one thing is just being able to do this, like being able to keep writing books. That is a, a success for me being able to, uh, the fact that I get to, uh, I have my fourth book coming out is amazing. And, and getting to have a long-term career in historical fiction, like that, that is a definition of success for me. I'm kind of lining up events for launch with different libraries. I have a lot of libraries, librarians I'm friends with and bookstores. And it's very hard to say no, because I, I was saying to my one of my booksellers here, like the fact that anyone wants me to talk about my book to them is amazing. Like that's incredible. And, and a success, and that's success to me too. The fact that I hear from readers and people besides my family are reading my book. That's, it's still amazing to me after six years. It is amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> so speaking of family, I want to give a shout out to Charlie, your husband. Um, such a <laughs> wonderful advocate for you and just has such a smart marketing brain. So tell tell everybody about kind of your working relationship with your husband. And do you talk to him about the book ideas or do you, does he come in more in the marketing stage? And how does he kind of help grow you as an author in that sense or support you as an author? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So Charlie is the best. He's a marketing exec in high tech. He's still in the high tech world. But he was the one 19 years ago when I said I wanted to write fiction. My daughter's 19. He was like, of course, you can totally do that. And you're going to be great at it. And you're going to publish books and it's going to be fine. Like he's my number one fan. And now he has his own little fan base. Of, like when we do webinars, a lot of people are like, where's Charlie? So that's kind of great. And um, and yeah, he he's just really savvy when it comes to the marketing end of things. And he pushes me to pay attention to that. And he helps me with so much of that. He's I got, he's responsible for my website and website design and helping me with my MailChimp newsletter, mailing list and all of those things. So yeah, he's been amazing. He was, he, I had to put my, my computer on do not disturb because he's at a conference and he's texting me about all the stuff we need to do for launch. And I'm like, okay, slow your roll. I'm talking to Carly. <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> but uh, but thank you for allowing him to be on our our, call, our agent call the other day because yeah, he's, he's so excited and interested and loves to be involved in it. So I appreciate that too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so fun to me. Yeah. It's like, Carly and Charlie and Jane. <laughs> the, <laughs> exactly. The tripod. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so Charlie, I said hi. Lastly, can you think of some kind of writing advice or writing wisdom that you kind of want to impart on our listeners? I know you're a big fan of the pod and you've heard lots of different advice given. Is there anything else you want to kind of underscore or or share with our listeners? Yeah, I think the one thing that I can share, and I've talked to other writers about it, and I've talked to, to writers group about it, is like, Publishing is persistence more than anything else. And I remember Pam Janoff was talking about this, the writer Pam Janoff, and 
she said, you know, if you stop knocking on doors, if you stop trying, if you take yourself out of the game, that's when you lose. Like you just have to, it, it can be completely soul crushing. This industry is really, really hard, but like find your people, find your support group and, and persevere, keep persisting because those are the people that finally push through and, and, and see success. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, Jane, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so excited for the book to come out. Good night from Paris and March and everybody can get it very, very soon. So we're so excited for you to kind of continue you. your historical fiction career. Thank you. And thank you so much for everything. It's been such a pleasure working with you, Carly. I'm so happy to have you as my agent. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I hope everybody got a lot of great wisdom from Jane. Um, Jane Healy can be found online at janehealy.com and keep in touch with her on social media. She also has a historical happy hour, which you can catch. Jane, tell them a little bit about your historical happy hour. I don't think we touched on that. Oh, yeah. So that I started that during the pandemic as a way to keep in touch with my my readers and also help promote some other historical fiction author friends. And I do it once a month. It's generally a, a historical fiction author that has a new book that just came out or is coming out within a matter of a couple months. And so it's been it's been amazing. I, I really enjoy doing it. I wish I had more time to do it weekly like you guys do. Shit no one tells you about writing, but it's just I can't read that many books. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, and it's available on YouTube. All my past episodes are available on YouTube and you can also listen to them as a podcast. And yeah, so it, it, all the information is on janehealy.com. If you subscribe to my mailing list, you'll also get updates of her invitations to watch it live or when they're, when the recordings are up. Amazing. Well, you do so much for the historical fiction community. Um, and we're so excited to see this next book launch. Me too. Thank you so much for everything, Carly. Keep listening for an exclusive audio excerpt of Good Night from Paris, written by my client Jane Healy and narrated by Christina Klebe. Brilliance Audio. Good Night from Paris by Jane Healy. Performed by Christina Klebe. When I walked out of my apartment building on Rue Saint-Dominique, I nearly collided with my neighbor, the elderly Madame Vachon. She was returning from a walk with her two enthusiastic black-and-white papillons, Oscar and Titou, so I held the door for her, almost getting tangled in the little dog's leather leashes. It was a crisp October afternoon, and I had decided to bike to Les Deux Magots to meet Elise, my agent in France. With my hair tucked under a navy blue beret and my windbreaker over my dress to protect me from the autumn breeze, I rode through my adopted city, reminded at every turn why it had captivated Americans like me for centuries. From the picturesque bridges crossing the Seine to the cream-colored apartment buildings with their matching balconies and mansard roofs, to the ornate street signs. And then there was my favorite part of Paris. The cafes on almost every block, their terraces crammed with Parisians sitting together around tiny wrought iron tables, sharing drinks and cigarettes. Though just beneath the gorgeous facade lurked the palpable tension of a city whose citizens were on edge, clutching their gas masks everywhere they went. 
You could see it in the expressions of many of the patrons sitting at the cafes, the worry in their eyes, the serious conversations about a brother or son who had gone to war, or about the recent air raids and blackouts. And the topic that was on every Parisian's mind, whether to leave the city for the coast or someplace of relative safety, or stay in the capital. And since my husband, Jacques, had left, I too had been dealing with this question, as well as my own feelings of heartache and anxious worry. The brilliant, handsome Frenchman, Jacques Tartier, had been my adoring husband since the previous summer. Paris had been our home together for just over a year. But in mid-September, after being turned down by the French army due to his weak lungs, Jacques had accepted a role as a liaison for the British troops arriving in Brittany. And now that he was gone, I felt like a foreigner again, alone and adrift. An unemployed expatriate who spoke heavily accented French. Jacques had been my anchor to this city and this new life. I desperately needed something else to ground me here while he was away. Today, I hoped Elise might have the answer. The Café Les Deux Magots was in the charming Saint-Germain-des-Prés district. Opened in 1885, it was one of Paris's oldest cafés, and since 1933 had become a bastion of cultural life in Paris, and a favorite spot for both famous and unknown artists and writers. Jacques had taken me to Deux Magots on one of our first warm summer evenings together. Sitting at an outside table at dusk, we had lingered for hours enjoying la cuisine, a popular aperitif, watching the people passing by, and basking in our newlywed glow. Do you recognize that man over there? The one with the pale blue shirt? Jacques whispered in my ear, nodding to a crowded table of people on the opposite side of the cafe. They were all smoking cigarettes and had gone through several bottles of red wine. The man he was referring to was small and compact, with a receding hairline and large, intense eyes. I do, but I can't place him, I said. Who is he? Pablo Picasso, Jacques said, running his fingers down my arm in a way that made me shiver. Oh, yes, of course, I said. Fascinating, and he's just sitting there holding court, enjoying his friends. Would you like to meet him? He asked. Jacques was acquainted with many in the artist community in Paris. I am sure he would love to meet you. He loves to meet beautiful women. Maybe another time, I said, grabbing his hand, putting my other hand on his cheek. I'm quite content with just you tonight, my darling. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up.
This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.